The reading this morning is Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. So Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Amen. Let's just pray uh, before we come to that passage together again, shall we? Father God, we come to your word needing to hear from you, needing again to be fed by your grace. And so, Lord, I ask by your spirit you might minister to us now. Lord, would these words that we've read come to life within us? Would what you've helped me prepare bring life, bring encouragement, bring strengthening would it Lord lead us to let go of any last vestiges of confidence in ourselves and instead place our trust wholeheartedly in you Lord we thank you that your word speaks a better word to us than the message of the world and Lord we've spent six and a half days in the world hearing the message of the world in countless ways and so Lord pray that you might speak to us now in power that you might give us ears to hear eyes to see you and and hearts ready to respond to you so Lord we pray that you might do that work within us Amen We were thinking last week about that role of Adam and Christ Paul has set out at the very beginning of this letter that his hope in the gospel is is rooted in this idea that in the gospel he gives a righteousness that's not our own. He says, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As it's written, uh, from faith, for faith, as it's written, the righteous 
shall live by faith. His hope is that the gospel has within itself the power needed to bring anyone to faith and to salvation. And the reason that it can do that is that within it, what happens is that we are given God's righteousness. That apart from, we face the wrath of God. Chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of humanity who suppress the truth. And then he shows us all kinds of different ways in which you might do that. All kinds of different ways in which you might be ungodly and unrighteous. Whether it's from obvious sort of rebellious actions to very moralistic self-righteous actions. Either way. What chapter 5 showed us though, is that underneath actually just this layer of our actions being wrong, is that there's this deeper truth that actually even before we've ever done anything, we're wrong because of who represents us. We're wrong because of Adam, our representative, who through him we have shared in his sin. That there's something deep within us before we ever do anything. And yet... The hope then is that Jesus can grant us his righteousness to undo all of that for us. So this next section in chapter 6 is all about the freedom that God has won for us in Christ's death. And yet right out of the gate we need to recognise that the word freedom needs a careful defining, doesn't it? Because actually there are potentially two pictures of freedom and oppression, of salvation and life that are at war. The world around us says of freedom that freedom is the ability and the opportunity to indulge my desires without shame. That's what freedom is, to be able to do what I want when I want without anybody telling me that I'm wrong. The world says then that oppression is anything and anyone that would try to stop me indulging myself. So that salvation is the removing of any rules, any values, any societal norms, or any shame that would stop me indulging myself. So that true life could be defined as to be who I believe myself to be, and to do what I want to do. To take God's place. God reveals himself to Moses, Exodus 3, verse 14. I am who I am. Or you'll see a footnote in your Bible there telling you that it could also be translated, I am what I am, or I will be who I will be. Hopefully you get from a combination of the three translations, God is able to be what we are trying to be. See, oftentimes it's not enough Just to be in the image of God, is it? I want to be like God, just like Adam. There's a rejection of the reality of being human and a rebellious attempt to be God. That's how the world pictures it, doesn't it? And yet the gospel does the opposite. The gospel says that freedom is now the ability for my disordered desires to be overcome and to be overridden. That oppression is me being left at the mercy of my disordered desires, unable to be free. That salvation is the removal of the power of sin that leads to my disordered desires within me. That true life 
would be to be who God has made me to be and to do what pleases him and to do what is good for me. To like Jesus in the garden who says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. See, being made in the image of God is enough. Leads to this submission to God's rule and reign, doesn't it? There's an acceptance of our humanity and a submission to honour God. And that's the picture of freedom that Paul is presenting. And it's important we clarify that at the very beginning. So the point of today is that the death of Christ, by which your sin is paid for, brings you the chance of new life in him. And so I want to show you four things in this passage here this morning. That we see, firstly, life after death, in verses 1 to 2. That we see our old self dies with Christ's death, that we're united in death. Thirdly, that there's a new life secured in Christ's resurrection, that we're united in his resurrection. And then fourthly, we see the king is dead, and so long live the king. Look with me there at those first couple of verses. Paul starts here, what shall we say then? Or we could put it perhaps, so what? If we're saved by the imputation of Christ's righteousness, that's what we were thinking about last week, a fancy way of saying that we're granted Jesus' perfect record. That we don't do anything but receive the record of what Jesus did. And that's a reasonable question for Paul to ask, isn't it? And for Paul to anticipate that someone's asking. Look at chapter 5, verse 20 there. He's told us, now the law came in to increase the trespass. And I said that what that means is that not the law itself is broken and doing that. But when the law is there, when I then still go on to break it, it makes it more evident that I'm sinning. The fact that someone tells me not to, and then I go on to do it, shows up my sin even more than if I'd done it, but they hadn't happened to say, don't do it. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You can see the thought. Well, what do we make of that then? What do we do now then? So he says, what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Are we to continue? Are we to, the word there is, is to tarry, to remain, to stay behind in sin that grace may abound? Does it matter what we do now? Paul is very often dialoguing with two particular groups in most of his letters. And both of these groups are wrong on the same subject, and that is the role of the law in the life of the Christian. But both these groups are wrong in the opposite directions. He deals with one group that loves the law and one that dispenses with the law completely. He deals with legalists, firstly. These are people who love the law and want to make it central to the Christian life. And the idea is this, that God saves us by his grace, but he sanctifies us, he makes us more like him with his law. So it's up to us to stop sinning. The result of this is that we have to, at very least, partner with God, and it's about us keeping up our end of the bargain. The effects of this are quite significant, because what happens is you drift between a sort of self-righteousness when you feel you do well, which normally means you didn't do something, or you drift towards self-pity when you do badly, 
which usually means, you know, you did something you're vaguely aware you perhaps shouldn't have done. What it means is that sanctification, becoming more godly, more like him, and eventually your actual salvation comes through monkery. It comes through doing certain things and not doing others. And Paul responds quite uh, directly to this. Galatians 3 verse 3 says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, and the idea is that having been saved by God's work through the Spirit, are you now being perfected, and it's the same idea of being sanctified, becoming more like God, are you being perfected by the flesh? His answers are very clear, unequivocal. No, you're not. Or in Colossians 2, he says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that will perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. And now listen to how he characterizes these. Verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Simply putting rules there is not enough to stop you doing it. You could put it this way. I've put it this way for you before. I'm from the southwest, so there's not all that many things that I particularly sort of love about it that you can't find elsewhere. The ocean, but, you know, you can find that lots of places. Uh, But one of them is pasties. Okay, now, pasties are not good for you. Okay, but they're just home food. So one of the few things, whenever I'm back down there, I have to get a hold of those. Now, the thing is, they're not good for you. They're not good for the diet. Now, as strict as a diet I can put in place, as much as I can sort of do that and try to be disciplined and focused with that and incentivize myself, if I don't deal with the fact that I love pasties, it doesn't matter. It's only a matter of time. I only have to pass a shop that's good enough that that willpower is going to crumble and cave. And so it goes with everything. Unless you deal with the love underneath it, it doesn't matter what rules you put in place. So there's one group who are legalists, and they love the law, and they want to see the law as being a huge part of Christian life. This is how you become more like God, and yet Paul says, no, no, it doesn't work like that at all. And yet there's another group here, the Libertines, The Libertines, or the fancy word for it actually is the antinomians. They hate the law. Anti, against, nomia, law. And they see no place for the law in the Christian life. The idea is simple. Again, it's that God saves us by his grace, but he doesn't sanctify us. So the law doesn't matter. It doesn't actually matter about becoming more like him, because God saves us by his grace anyway. And so the result is that it's all up to God. It doesn't matter what we do. It's, if anything, the more we sin, the more he forgives, the better he looks. And here's the effects of it. It's that you're not transformed at all. You devalue his grace. You show that you love sin more than him. And so salvation actually just allows me to pursue hedonism, which I've always pursued anyway, pursue the pursuit of pleasure guilt-free, so that every day is cheat day. Every day has an easy explanation for me, and I let myself off. 
And yet Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. These are the groups that Paul's dealing with. This is why Paul would give such an extended sort of argument and discussion to this. And so it's worth maybe just hitting pause quickly again to note why this question has arisen for Paul. And the reality is that whenever the gospel of free grace is rightly preached, we always have to make this rebalance. I could take you to hundreds of people who would give you some sort of quote that would say that, but here's just one. John Stott, the English evangelical from his commentary, says, if we're proclaiming Paul's gospel with its emphasis on the freeness of grace and the impossibility of self-salvation, we are sure to provoke the charge of antinomianism. If we do not arouse this criticism, the likelihood is that we're not preaching Paul's gospel. So it's a natural question to come up. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul tells us, by no means. Or we could translate it, God forbid. It's an emphatic answer. The Christian is not to live in what Christ died to free us from. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And that was worth us just thinking a little about the translation there of that sentence. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Because there's a possibility here that these verses are translated and used incorrectly and very harmfully. And that could be done in this way, that you take that verse to mean we're dead to sin, so we will never sin, and in fact we'll never want to again. And I'll give you three quick reasons that's not what Paul is saying. And I get some of these partly from John Stott. Firstly, Paul also says that Jesus died to sin. Look ahead a little bit there to verse 10. For the death he, that is Jesus now, died, he died to sin once for all. Does that mean that Jesus died so he wouldn't sin anymore? Surely not. Surely not. That's, that's not... What we'd want to say, is it? So if we have to do a bit of translation work there in verse 10, why not also in verse 2? Paul also says Jesus died to sin. But secondly, Paul encourages us not to sin. If we're dead to sin in Christ and so cannot sin and are not tempted to do so, why would Paul give that charge and encouragement? That surely is just completely unnecessary if we're not able to sin. He encourages us not to sin. But then thirdly, our experience tells us we do sin. We know that. We know from our experience that we do sin. John says that anybody who claims they don't sin is a liar. So we need to look a little closer at that verse. What shall we say then? He says, are we to continue? And we reflected on this. That means to tarry, to stay behind in sin, that grace may abound. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? 
And the word died to there is about the ending of something that once was. And it's about the sort of, as well, the physical proximity to it. That it's something that was but now isn't and that you're now not with. Something that you've been separated from. So go back to verse 1 and then into verse 2. How can we go back to, how can we stay behind, tarry and continue in something that Jesus has helped us die to, be separated from, be pulled out of, bring an end to? How can we willingly stay with what a cost of Jesus' blood he separated us from? In Christ we're cut free of the power of sin. And so to remain behind in sin is to reject Jesus as saviour. Perhaps a picture that might summarise it is that of the prodigal son. And of course it ends with the father and his love and grace and compassion welcoming in the son. And the son entering his father's embrace. But imagine if how the story had ended is that sort of half an hour later the son then decides to go back out. Okay, that was very nice, Dad, but now I'm back to what I love. I'm going back to the ruin that I brought upon myself. That's the picture here. How can we who've died to sin, who've been pulled out of it, then go back? Here's the point. Since Jesus died to pull us out of sin's grasp, we're not to cling to sin, to deliver a joy that only God ever can. Secondly here, we see we're united in death. Look at verses 3 and 4 there. He he asks us, do you not know? And everything he now will say assumes that they ought to know this. We ought to know this. And yet, do they? Do we? Maybe not always. Do you not know all of us who've been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? Is this a passage primarily concerned with arguing for a particular way of baptising? No, I don't think so. The point of the passage is about the union that we have with Christ. That union was the focus of chapter 5, it's the source of our salvation. And still into chapter 6, this is what Paul is thinking about, this union with Christ. And what does it do? So the use of baptism here is metaphoric. And it's because baptism is a sign of the covenant, just as circumcision was. Why must this be the case? I want to do this briefly because I don't want to get sort of too long into this. But it must be this way because it is not baptism but faith that unifies us with Christ, unless we're Catholic. So it can't be that at the point of baptism we enter Jesus' death and resurrection. If you read it too literally, that's what you'll be ending up saying about it. But surely that's not really what you want to say about it, is it? It's not the point of baptism at which we're united to Christ. It's not as if then if we hadn't been baptised, we wouldn't be united to Christ. No, it's not doing something so significant as that. If you push the metaphor too far, you go further than any of us want to go. We start having to say that something which is symbolic is actually saving And Paul has made sort of such pains to argue that we're saved by faith alone, apart from anything we do, even a baptism. So it makes no sense that he would now portray baptism as being crucial to salvation. See, the timing of when you're baptised, whether it's uh, as an infant or as an adult, might not be quite so important as we might have thought on first reading. But certainly what's clear in Paul's mind 
is that baptism serves as a symbolic act. It's an outward sign that portrays an inward reality in his people and how we're united with him. Through faith, pictured in baptism, we enter into the death of Christ and we receive all its benefits. We were buried, therefore, with him. Baptism reminds us that our old life died with Christ as he died carrying our sin. A relief. A relief in a world in which our sin, our failings, will never be allowed to die. In a world in which our sins, our flaws and failings, potentially just become memes that are recycled year after year. We see this in a sort of light-hearted way, in that one embarrassing moment could be reused and recycled endlessly, so that your embarrassing moment doesn't even just die out with those who are there anymore. In fact, it could be shared with everyone for eternity. And sometimes that's pretty funny. I still get uh, a laugh out of watching Ed Miliband try to negotiate eating a bacon sandwich. Or perhaps you'd wish that this era wouldn't be so if you're Jennifer Lawrence and struggle to negotiate steps. Or even if perhaps a seemingly innocuous moment actually can be taken out of context. Here's a photo that birthed the sad Keanu uh, meme. He still insists that he wasn't actually sad, he was just enjoying his lunch. Uh, Although enjoying might be overstating it, perhaps. Or perhaps the famous picture of Donald Trump, which has birthed the Trump draws meme. And all sorts of uh, funny takes on it. And yet, these are all mildly amusing. But there is actually a much more sinister reality to this too. That any misdemeanor and any mistake can be constantly drawn upon. We can find that we don't find freedom from our past. We have a society that's very strong on seeking out and pronouncing judgment upon sins. And some of that is actually quite good, isn't it? We see this on a societal level. It's quite right, isn't it, to confront and to confess shameful parts of our history and rethink some of the glorifying of the past. I mean, we have something of a sort of difficulty this weekend, don't we? Because there is a very shameful history which forms the backdrop to the celebrations of our empire. And it's quite right for that to be recognised, isn't it? The British Empire was built on colonisation, conquest, theft, usury, slavery and murder. It's not wrong for that to be recognised. It is fact. It may be uncomfortable, perhaps, but it's true nonetheless. In India, in Africa, in the West Indies, we invaded, we plundered the land, we stole resources, created a profit to prop up an empire, we subjugated and enslaved people and forced Western cultural values upon them and murdered millions of people. In the Persian Gulf, we invaded, stole resources, installed puppet rulers and overturned other rulers. It's not wrong that this is pointed out, that it's confessed, that it's mourned over. In fact, it's probably very good. These actions have left significant legacies of abuse and hurt, haven't they? And it's not being a snowflake to recognise that. It's being honest about history. So some of the way in which we confront and confess sin and wrongdoing is, is very useful, is very right. And some of that happens on an individual level, doesn't it? 
And some of that, again, is right. You shouldn't be able to get away with casual racism, sexism and homophobia. No one has a right to that, do they? However, where is the room for who we were, for failings of the past, to be put to death? That's a question for our culture to consider. Because it might perhaps be prone to going too far in one direction. Douglas Murray in The Madness of Crowds. He's uh, gay, he's atheist, but he writes about the need of forgiveness in one of his books, The Madness of Crowds here. He says, before the advent of the internet, people's mistakes could be remembered within their communities or circles. Then being able to start a new life somewhere else in the world was at least a possibility. Today, people may be followed by their doppelganger wherever they go in the world. And even after death, the excavation and tomb raiding will go on, not in the spirit of inquiry or forgiveness, but in one of retribution and vengeance. It carries on then later. The consensus for centuries was that only God could forgive the ultimate sins. But on a day-to-day level, the Christian tradition, among others, also stressed the desirability, if not the necessity, of forgiveness even to the point of infinite forgiveness. As one of the consequences of the death of God, Friedrich Nietzsche foresaw that people could find themselves stuck in cycles of Christian theology with no way out. Specifically, that people would inherit the concepts of guilt, shame, (coughs) guilt and shame, sorry, but would be without the means of redemption, which the Christian religion also offered. He then goes on to quote here from Hannah Arendt, Uh, lecture that she gave uh, in 1964. Without being forgiven, released from the consequences of what we have done, our capacity to act would, as it were, be confined to one single deed from which we could never recover. We would remain the victim of its consequences forever, not unlike the sorcerer's apprentice who lacked the magic formula to break the spell. Back to Douglas Murray one last time. Today we do seem to live in a world where actions can have consequences we could never have imagined, where guilt and shame are more at hand than ever, and where we have no means whatsoever of redemption. We do not know who could offer it, who could accept it, and whether it's a desirable quality compared to an endless cycle of fiery certainty and denunciation. And yet Paul encourages us here verse 4 just as christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father that we too might walk in newness of life who we were dies with christ so we might become something new something more reborn in christ we're united in death then secondly here we're united in resurrection You see that Paul makes this little transition now from thinking about us being united with Christ in his death to united in his new life. Verse 5 here, for if, he set out the metaphor and the idea that we're united to Christ, but what does it mean now for the Christian life? And that's been the point of verse 1, the point of this section. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And there's a double hope. There's a hope, firstly, that we're able to have our old life die through his death for us. 
But the second hope is that we're able to find a new life through his resurrection. Our old self, verse 6, was crucified with him. Jesus carries our old self. Not just what we did, by the way, but who we were. Our old self was crucified with him. That the body of sin might be brought to nothing. The idea is that sin would be defeated. So that the claims of sin over our life would be met. And so that, here's the second purpose, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That sin might be disarmed. So that sin, though present, doesn't have the same hold it once did. For one who has died, i.e. died for us, that's in verse 6, has been set free from sin. We have died. Who we were is gone. You can't sin when you can't breathe, when you can't think, when you can't move. And one day we'll be set free totally from sin because we'll die. And yet also one day we'll be totally renewed when he returns. We will be like him for we will see him as he is, John tells us in his first letter. If we've died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. There's hope for freedom from the past on the one hand and new life into the future. And this confidence of a new life with Christ is based on what we know, he says. Look at verse 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Jesus' resurrection is a reassurance that he's overpowered death, that he's not held by it, that he's overturned it. The death he died, he died to sin. He hasn't died for his sin, he didn't sin. But he's died to pay for our sins and to break the power of sin over us once for all. Jesus' one-time death did what centuries of animal sacrifices would never do for any person, for any sin, once for all. The death he died, he died to sin, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Now sin is dealt with, the life that Jesus lives, he lives for the purposes of God. And so, here's Paul's conclusion here in this section, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Here's the conclusion that Paul had been building up to in this little section here. That as Jesus overcame death to live again, having dealt with sin, and now to live for God, we're to consider ourselves both dead and resurrected. And the crucial element to Paul here is what you consider, what you think, what you meditate upon, how you see yourself to be. It drives what you do. And so the call is to protect your mindset. You are dead to sin and alive to God. We're united in death. We're united in resurrection. And then look at verse 12 to 14 here. Here's Paul's conclusion in this argument. We see the king is dead. Long live the king. Paul's argument has been to build the reasoning 
for this closing plea that he gives us, which follows directly on from verses 1 to 2. He says, out of all of this, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. He said just before this in verse 9, that death no longer has dominion over Jesus. He says, let not sin therefore reign, and the word there is exercise dominion, exercise rule, like a king. Let sin not reign in your bodies to make you obey their passions, or their lusts is the word. Christ at the cross has disarmed the power of sin to rule over us, although it still has a power to a point to tempt us, doesn't it? It still seems to feel passionate. It's more than thoughts. It seems to have a hold sometimes. Let not sin therefore reign Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. The word there, don't present, don't yield, don't hand over. Don't give over your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. We're freed for a new life. But it's one which in nature is a war. What you once gave yourself over to You're now to fight off. The word there, instruments, is weapons. Don't give your members to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. How? How are we to do that? You might ask. You'd be right to ask. Verse 13 continues. Present yourselves to God. Give yourselves over. Yield yourselves. Hand yourselves over to God as those who've been brought from death to life. The way to find freedom from the dominion of sin and that your members, your body, not be an instrument for unrighteousness is not to give ourselves over to sin, but to give ourselves over to God. And your members to God as instruments, as weapons for righteousness. See, the process of sanctification, the process of becoming more like Jesus, does call for action. Though we're saved entirely through Jesus' work, it does call for action. It calls for giving ourselves over to God. We're saved by God's work alone. We're sanctified, we're made like Christ, we're made like God through the Spirit. But it requires us submitting to his work. Why should we do this? Paul gives his conclusion here. Just as death has no dominion over Jesus and it shows us his power over that and his righteousness in being able to not be bound by death, for sin will have no dominion over you. And there's something really important that Paul's doing there that we might not have spotted. Because Paul has changed from speaking about indicatives to giving an imperative. What that means is he's now giving a statement, not a command. He's been giving us commands, encouragements. Don't do this, don't do the other. Now he gives us a statement. Here's where we can root our confidence. Sin will have no dominion over you. 
Just as Jesus has uh, had death have no dominion over him, so he's defeated sin, so it will have no dominion over us. Your will that was once enslaved, as St. Augustine put it, that your will is free, free indeed, it's free from righteousness, but enslaved to sin. To put it more simply, you're free to pick your poison. You might choose a different sin to me, but that's about the limits of your ability to choose. Your will that was once enslaved, bound by sin, with sin holding dominion over you, reigning over you, controlling you, enslaving you, keeping you held, is through the Spirit redeemed so that you can choose righteousness, choose freedom, choose life. Why? What has changed? Paul gives us a second indicative, a second statement, not a command. The first statement, sin will have no dominion over you. The second one, since you're not under law, but under grace. God's grace has gifted you a righteousness not yours to free you from the demands of the law. Since Christ died to pay for sin, sin no longer has the power it did. Instead, we're to let Christ reign in us. The free grace of Christ that binds us to him, that frees us from our guilt in Adam, that renews our will, requires a response. And the response is submission. It's the most countercultural and rare commodity in our culture that so elevates and promotes free thinking, free expression, free living. It's free, all right. But as Augustine said, it's not freed. To be truly freed is to respond to the good news of the gospel in submission. Why is this so significant? Why does Paul build up to landing on this point here? Well, if you think back to last week uh, and chapter 5 as a whole, and the idea was that we are caught up in the sin and the failing of Adam. He sins and fails on our behalf, and we're caught up within it, and we're guilty in it and because of it. And we become like Adam because we make the same sort of choice. That it's not enough to be in the image of God. I want to be like God. I want to know what's right and wrong. I want to decide. I think I'm better placed to know what's good, what's right, what's perfect for my life. It was pride. At the heart of every sin is always somewhere pride. (laughs) Believing that just somehow we know better. This here, landing up in this point here, that the route to not being under the reign of sin, of becoming more and more like Christ in the Christian life beyond being saved, is one of submission, is the opposite of Adam's prideful grasp for autonomy. That's Paul's point. Do the opposite of what Adam did. Adam reached out to be God. Do the opposite. Submit. Yield to the work of the Spirit within you. Allow Christ to reign in you and to find new life in him. Why don't we pray and then in a few moments we'll uh, 
come to share communion together. Father God, in some ways, the result of this passage is called to yield ourselves to you and allow you to work within us. Seems so small. That would sound so easy. And yet we know that one command, that one encouragement is so difficult because we do find ourselves Reaching places where we doubt your word, where we doubt your goodness to us, where we don't know if we can trust you fully, and where we do wonder whether there's something that we can reach out to that can provide us something that you can't. We find ourselves turning back. We know we shouldn't. We don't mean to oftentimes, but we do. But Lord, I thank you in your grace and in your love and compassion and goodness towards us. You've not only done everything for us to save us, that in Christ Jesus, your perfect record, your perfect righteousness given to us in our place, we're made right before you. But that you also give us all things in the walk with you along that narrow path. That through your spirit, you help us. Lord, we thank you that though we do still sin, and Lord, we apologize for that, sin doesn't have the same power it once did. It doesn't have the same reign and rule over our lives, that you've given us a freedom we'd not experienced before. And that, Lord, you give us all that we need along the journey. So, Spirit, we ask, whatever sort of place we're in just now, that you might fill us anew, that you might help us for that struggle. That you might help us to submit ourselves to you, to your plan, to your purposes, to your word. To give our bodies and minds over to you to be weapons for righteousness. Weapons in a good fight. To know you more and to be transformed from one degree of glory to another as we look upon you, meditate on you, and delight in you. So Lord, we pray for your help for us in this journey. We pray that you would give us the strength we don't have in ourselves. For our good and your glory we ask it. Amen.